welcome Katja Baram from my home institution, The Ohio State University. Welcome. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here, Frederick. Um, and you are Director of Undergraduate Studies, I believe, and you're in Germanic Languages and Literature. Gosh, that is such That's a... That's right. Isn't that sort of traditionally a pretty, uh, okay, I don't want to like overstep here, but sort of conservative <laughs> space to be doing scholarship? Um, I think traditionally it has been, although I think it's changed a lot in the last 20 years or so. There's been a real move away from Germanic literatures, um, where it's a really conservative discipline to more of a Germanic studies approach. Um, where it's a little bit more open, a little bit more cultural studies inflected, and less conservative in general, I would say, in terms of scholarship. Um, so I want to hear all about how you got to kind of where you're at and what you do and how you're shaking things up in the discipline. Um, you've definitely kind of found your way to narrative theory and I know you were at Berkeley, you were at Berkeley, is that right? Um, yes. And so maybe you can share with us your origin story. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, like many of us in these jobs, I have always loved to read. And when I look back, even as far as when I was in middle school, I loved to read things that had really distinct voices and really distinct perspectives, historical perspectives also. So I loved to read books that were, you know, in the form of someone's diary or books with multiple narrators where you got different perspectives on the same situation or the same relationships. And when I was in grad school doing my PhD in German, I did have a department that was really heavily historically focused. So most of the scholarship there and most of the people who were working there uh, were new historicists, or they were thinking very much in historical terms. And that really spoke to me because as an undergraduate, I also studied political science, and, and I am interested in larger historical movements um, and in that historical aspect. But I realized at some point that I kept being really grabbed by novels that had this same narrative structure which was where you had a character narrator who appeared in a frame and then who spent most of the book telling a story about someone else. But the frame was bigger. It wasn't just like, oh, I found these letters in an attic and let me tell you what the letters said. The narrator was there more than is normal in a frame. And the narrator always had some kind of connection to the person whose story they were telling. And so I got really interested in the question of what was going on in these books and why these books kept appearing and what the function was of this external narrator telling a story about someone else and what the relationship between those two stories was. And that was a question that I felt like I couldn't answer historically, or at least not entirely historically. I actually think it has a lot to do with history and with different perspectives on history. Um, because what I came to see is that this narrative form had a lot to do with trying to recognize and reconcile very different perspectives on events um, over time. And I thought, well, 
I obviously have to learn something about narrative theory to be able to talk about what's going on here. And so I started reading by myself and, um, and that's how I got, that's how I got going on it. And then I got lucky enough to land here where there were a lot of people to talk about with, um, but that was further along. Katra, was there a particular model or a set of narrative theory, say tools that you gravitated more toward? You know, it's interesting because um, no, the answer is at the beginning. At the beginning, I was being wildly eclectic, um, which from a methodological standpoint is maybe not so great, but I think was good for my education at the beginning. Um, As time has gone on, and I mean, I did eventually figure out that for me, um, the rhetorical approach, rhetorical theory approach is what I've lent, leaned toward because more broad, because it fits in with the way I think a bit about things more broadly and the question of what language does um, and how people use language to achieve certain kinds of ends or to do certain kinds of things. But it took a little while for that to develop. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So here, like, you know, what is called the new family novel. Um, uh, what is the new family novel? How does it relate to the sort of frame narration character identity space that you've been kind of working on untangling for us? Well, you're absolutely right that they're related. And that's how I got started on this new family novel. Um, so I'm going to start with a little bit of historical background because that's how I do it which is that since the 1970s or 1980s, uh, Germany as a nation and Germans as individuals have spent a lot of time and energy reckoning with World War II and the Holocaust and um, the crimes and atrocities of that era. And one of the places where a lot of that reckoning has happened is within families. Like kids to their parents, what were you doing during the Third Reich? And so in my first book on these, these, this narrative situation, I had one chapter that was about children. Um, there was books of children who were telling their mother's stories and their mothers were from this World War II era. Um, and that got me started on being interested in these stories more broadly and in the way that gender plays into these stories because there's a very standard story that's told about how post-war Germans have dealt with the war. And it's a story that goes by generations. Well, the first generation repressed it and the second generation rebelled. And now the third generation is remaining critical, but also trying to be more empathetic with that first generation. Um, But what I found when I was reading those stories about mothers was that all of those characteristics of the third generation were there in these books that were written in the 1970s and 1980s. So um, in this landscape, people tend to differentiate between those books written in the 70s and 80s, which are generally referred to as Feta literature or father literature. But 
And the new family novel is seen as being this new breed of novel that started to really blossom and appear actually more of a flood maybe around 2000 with this more empathetic, still critical, but empathetic and very self-reflective attitude. And um, I don't think you can make that distinction. I think if you look at these mother books from the 70s and 80s, they're doing much the same thing as these later books. So the question came, well, why is that? How is it that gender um, expectations and gender norms allow one kind of story to be told only about women in the 70s and 80s, but now about grandfathers and grandmothers and aunts and uncles, kind of everyone. So it got me started on thinking about the gender dynamics of cultural memory. So that's, that's what the new family novel is and how my first work kind of led me to thinking about it. Really interesting that, you know, shifting the optic and looking at the same period, you're actually kind of rewriting the right the literary history of the last century uh these last decades um mm -hmm. do you do we have an equivalent have you seen anything equivalent in the united states well that's a good question i mean i don't rule out the possibility that there are isolated equivalents here and there but we definitely don't have the phenomenon so, you know, Germany is really unique in the way that it has owned up to, confronted, and continues to wrestle with its past, its historical atrocities, which is not to say that it has no, you know, that it's, um, it couldn't do things better sometimes, or, you know, to set them up as a, as a model, but it's really pretty extraordinary when you compare it to any, almost any nation in the world, including definitely our own, where um, things like slavery or the genocide of Native American peoples are still not something that there's broad consensus about. And certainly not where um, you get dozens of novels and it's kind of a, a normal thing to, it's a genre, you know, there for people to be writing about their parents, their grandparents and what their roles were with respect to these atrocities. Um, there's a, in Germany, there is um, this book prize called the, the German book prize. It's been around for about 20 years and you might call it something like the equivalent of the Pulitzer and half pretty much half of the winners of that prize have been books like this. Um, maybe slightly different formats, but, you know, dealing with the same kinds of issues. So there's no comparable phenomenon. Um, there may be examples, but not nearly in the same way. Yeah. On the same, on the same scale. Right. Um, uh, yeah. Really interesting. Um, and has sort of ripple effects in terms of how we've been framing the narrative of, um, uh, you know, um, kind of reconciling with the past, even materially mm -hmm. today, right, mm -hmm. um, in this country, and actually how those calls to reconcile with the past um, are largely kind of ignored almost, right? Mm -hmm. Certainly not at the level of 
recognition that you're talking about in Germany on the kind of literary level. Um, you also work on fairy tales or modern fairy tales, maybe. Um, <laughs> tell me. I have. That. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, so my interest in fairy tales comes not so much from fairy tales themselves, but again, from fairy tales as a really fundamental kind of story that we tell in our culture. So, um, of course, also the beginnings of narrative theory and narratology are in fairy tales and in the analysis of fairy tales and the idea that we can have this map of how fairy tales develop um, and the elements of a fairy tale. And I got into this and interested in this um, because I was reading late 19th century socially critical novels and novellas. And I was reading a couple of these and I thought, wow, these have a lot of the markers of these classic features of fairy tales. Things like unnamed protagonists who are only identified by their um, profession and sets that like series of three events, you know, where it doesn't work out the first two times and the third time's the charm and other things like that. And so I was interested in the way that fairy tales, the structure of fairy tales has become a way of thinking in stories and the way that the logic of fairy tales um, structures and helps make these socially critical works familiar and understandable to people in a way because they know how to read this kind of story and they can go along with it. Um, and some of the stories, like this one that is showing on the bottom right-hand side of Bon Verte Bon it really follows through with the fairy tale logic the whole way. And its social criticism comes through that logic in a way. Whereas others, like this other one, Duskemindekint, it sets up the fairy tale logic. And then the fairy tale logic is interrupted, where you realize that for this series of three to be fulfilled um, would mean accepting a social injustice and the novel refuses to do that. So it's the way that we take these existing building blocks of stories and use them to tell new stories um, that really interests me about that. Yeah, and of course, the more we know about the rebuilding, the sort of more enriching the experience of it will be. Um, interesting too, like you basically just kind of laid out a way that we've moved way beyond sort of Vlad Vladimir Propp's kind of taxonomies of you mm -hmm. know types that he drew from fairy tales and was like, that's it, I'm done. And you're actually showing us a kind of post-classical narratological move, right? By saying that there are these formal shaping devices, but then they also exist within this larger kind of cultural space. Mm -hmm. Really beautiful. Yeah, and they have to re, re yeah, they have to be reshaped. It's a new cultural context. They serve different forms and they get, how do they change also with the cultural context? So um, as you kind of evolve in your scholarly interest and your directions and narrative directions, you also do this stuff with Tiny House Blog. Tell us about <laughs> that, yeah. 
Well, I mean, in many ways, I'm doing the same thing here that I did with that fairy tale project in the sense that I looked at these tiny house blogs. I got a little obsessed for a while um, and I was reading a lot of them and I thought these are really familiar stories. I actually know something like this story. Isn't that funny? <laughs> um, and what is it doing here? So the story that I think these really draw on are one of the kinds of stories that it really draws on is a really fundamental story of Western culture, which is the coming of age novel. It's about becoming a self-fulfilling, self-determining individual. Um, and there are other things that influence the tiny house stories and the tiny house blogs too, but I think this is really at its core, this idea that as individuals, we should break out and figure out the path that is right for us and shape that path um, to go in the direction that we want to go. And I think that that's very much the story that, that the tiny house movement tends to tell about what's going on in these tiny houses. Um, it's about people seizing their own destiny, right? And um, breaking with what's expected of you, taking the path less taken. Um, and, and that that's really what's going on. It's part of what makes them so attractive. I mean, there are other things too, but being able to motivate or explain it with this story, I think is part of what makes it so, so attractive, both for people who do it, um, and for people who just like to read or watch about doing it um, in both cases. So do you have a tiny house now? <laughs> no, I do not have a tiny house, but um, my parents kind of do. <laughs> so uh, I also come from a camping background, so it's also not so foreign to me, this idea of, okay, let's pare things down and live in a really small space for a while. Um, yeah, yeah. It, is, it is really interesting. I, I really hadn't, before you, your work, I hadn't thought about how invested in that narrative of the individual having kind of total control or agency over the shaping of themselves and how the tiny house really kind of embodies that. I love that. Um, so, so um, Katra, you also, like in the big scheme of things, Clearly, your work is driven by an impulse to understand better how narratives work in all of these different ways. Do you have a kind of alpha to omega sense of like a research program where you want to take us, where you've been taking us? Well, um, an alpha to omega. I guess here's the main at root. I am interested in the way that people use stories to make sense of themselves and their relationship to the world. And, um, and the relationship also between narratives and identity. And I think we can look at that in something like the new family novel or the mother book project, which is about our relationships to history and to, um, to historical events and our families. Um, we can look, we can think about that with respect to the tiny houses and 
I'm really more interested in the future and thinking the directions of, um, you know, what kind of stories have humans learned to tell about themselves? And given the environmental and ecological crises that we face, what kinds of stories do we need to learn to tell about ourselves? Or how do we take the stories that we already know and we already are familiar with and turn them into stories that can support us in moving forward in a better direction there. Um, and understanding in all of that, how stories relate to social relationships, social hierarchies. Um, I have just recently started thinking more about making rhetorical narrative theory more robust in its concern and social concerns um, without pushing it in any specific direction like gender or post-colonial identity, but really broadly, how could we build in a structure for making sure that we're thinking about social relationships, social power, when we talk about um, analyzing narratives. So it's this question of how narratives put the individual in relationship to the to the broader world, whether it be the human society, families on a broader scale, human society, or the world at large, also the non-human world. How can you, is there a Katra kind of trademark method or technique or something that you do in the, to bring this, all this sort of amazing knowledge, these tools that you use into your classrooms? Um, well, I would say that the first thing that I always say to students is that they need to trust themselves when they read and that they, when they read, should start from the question of how am I responding to what I'm reading? Um, how am I reacting to what I'm reading? What am I feeling? And to pay attention to that and that that's where they should start. You know, students walk into classrooms often with this feeling that literary analysis is something where they have to be looking for deep symbols and stuff that's hard to find and they don't know how to do it. And I always tell them, you have to start with yourself and what your response is to what you're reading. And then the analysis part comes in where you ask yourself, why? What is it about the text that I'm reading that steers me to feel that way or to respond that way? And what is it about me coming to the text that makes me respond that way. And where those two things come together, that's where you start, that's where you get analysis and, and that's the work that we do. Um, I do find that some concepts like um, progression, the idea of having students pay attention to the way a story unfolds or having students pay attention to direct discourse and indirect discourse and free and direct discourse and think about where is the information that we're getting coming from, from what kind of perspective and in what order. Those are questions that students can really get their hands on and get into to start with and is a good place to start. And a last observation I would make is that a little trick that I often use is to ask them to imagine something that we're reading being narrated, if it's narrated by a character narrator, what if it was a narrator from outside the text? How would that change what the text does? Um, because that kind of concrete starting point 
is often something they can respond to. Sometimes I even provide very bad rewritings of, um, you know, the beginning of an epistolary novel from the third person to say, okay, how does this change the book? What does it do that the original doesn't? What does the original do that this doesn't? Um, because that starts to have students appreciate how these things work. Amazing, yeah. And so we've talked about maybe more tiny house or what else? Yeah, what else are you working on? What's next for you? Well, what's next is finishing this book about uh, new family novels that I'm working on. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then I need to figure out um, where are the other places other than tiny houses where we see existing familiar stories being adapted or told in new ways. Um, I think that's an, an, a realm for exploration, uh, which I hope to be able to get get going on here soon. Katja, thank you so much uh, for sharing just a little bit of your journey and really helping us understand better why stories matter so much in enriching our understanding of ourselves and the world that we live in. Thank you, Katra. Thanks very much, Frederick. It's been a real pleasure.